0: That's a pretty dangerous song. "Take my will and let it be ever, always, all for thee." that those aren't words we would say lightly. It's so easy when it's set to a melody, to say, "Take my silver and my gold." But when it comes to fleshing that out on Monday, not so much. We' need to be very careful about the things that we utter and the things that we proclaim to be true of us, but yet God recognizes that's, that's a prayer, that's a heart desire, that's where we would really like to be, so we work towards that, but we don't want to say those things too lightly. I'm going to ask you to go with me to the book of Matthew this morning, if you would, Matthew chapter 24, we're in the last couple parables, there's only two more left after this one, and remember I, I want to remind you it's two days before Jesus is crucified, crucified on Friday, he seems to be speaking these things on Wednesday. We're just going to do a little uh, review this morning before we jump into the actual parable that's in Matthew 24, but I want to labor together with you a bit, uh, and you'll see what I mean by that. There's a couple verses, passages that are coming up, that we really need to labor through to really get this down. First, a question for you. How are you doing with the management of your distractions in your life that we talked about last week? Were you able to list those things? Did you come up with a list of what distractions might look like that could be pulling you off mission? Uh, One individual wrote me and said it would be a great idea to ask people to get accountability partners (laughs) that we could engage with. Maybe somebody in your life who would hold you accountable, you would hold them accountable over issues in your life that you might identify as being a distraction. What I know about most individuals, especially those who are church people, um, primarily, is that most church people desire greater intimacy with God. They desire to go deeper, desire to know God's will for their life, desire to understand God's call upon them. But one of the challenges in desiring greater intimacy with God um, is that we aren't always chasing after things that are precious to God. We're chasing after things that are precious to us. If you want greater intimacy with God, you chase after the things that are precious to God. The problem for us is that as we chase after things that are precious to us, They become distractions, and Satan loves to use that weapon of distraction. He's really good at it, and he brings a lot of them along the way. As you're going to see this morning, it'll come up in the midst of this parable. I know we've prayed once this morning as Michael ended that song, but I'd love to pray with you just for a moment to ask the Holy Spirit to be our guide and our teacher, because this is really intense material. So would you join me in that? We'll ask the Spirit to teach us. Father, we come before you asking that you would indeed use the power of the Holy Spirit who inhabits this place, inhabits believers, who causes the word to come alive. God, that you would use the power of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds, cause us to see things we can't see on our own, bring conviction where you need to do that. Father, where you need to bring comfort, where you need to bring encouragement, do that, but cause us to understand you better as a result of having been here this morning, understanding you better, and as a result, understanding ourselves better pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us a heart to react. We pray for this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. While on a business trip, a man stopped at a church in Texas. He was there on a Sunday, didn't normally attend that church but it was one of those large Texas churches, and he decided he wanted to go see what this was all about. So he went in and he came into the service a little bit late. Pastor had been making his way onto the platform making announcements, and as the visitor came in, he heard the pastor making this announcement about the second coming. The pastor actually said to his congregation, hey, if you come back this evening, I'll be teaching a message, a presentation on the second coming, and it's simply titled, Jesus is Coming. Well, the pastor finished his announcement, and he got quickly to the end of it, and he said, remember, seven o'clock tonight, Jesus is coming. (laughs) Went across the congregation like that, and that's the moment that that visitor walked into the auditorium. He heard that statement, and while the pastor smiled knowingly of what he'd just done, he heard the people laugh, he just simply moved on past it. While the congregation found it humorous, the visitor was hit right between the eyes, It caused him to begin envisioning, what would that actually look like? He found his way to his seat and he began actually asking himself questions like, would that happen? Am I ready? He didn't come to any resolve and he was completely distracted. With that same refreshed attitude, we need to be asking ourselves that very question this morning. We need to be searching our hearts, am I ready? This is the very issue that Jesus points to in these parables that we've been talking about. He's asking everybody, are you ready? So what if, what if Jesus came at 7 o'clock tonight? For some of you, anxiety just kicked in. And I'm going to be getting 2,000 text messages at 7.05. And if you do that, I'm not going to answer. Not to be mean, but... While those things might cause us to chuckle, we have to ask with the seriousness of the question that caused that visitor to step back and say, What would happen? What would happen at 7 05 p.m. for those who are still here? What if Jesus came back and took the church tonight? We're told according to the Bible that the return of Jesus for the church, the rapture of the church, appears to trigger the tribulation, the things, the very things we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, the seven-year concentration of time, seven years of history of humanity remaining on this planet, and at the end of those seven years, the second coming of Jesus. The Bible indicates that after the rapture of the church, immediately after the rapture, there will be a time of peace and tranquility on the entire globe. People will come to the conclusion that things are good. But then, then the wrath of God falls and it comes in rapid succession, one after the other after the other. That's kind of the ugly side. We're not going to start there this morning. We're going to start on the happy side and come back to the happy side in just a minute. If you're a person who's concerned about family members or coworkers, or just people in your social group who may not have faith in Jesus and may not know Jesus and you're worried about them, what's going to happen to them during the tribulation? Know this. During the tribulation, there will be a massive, massive turning to Jesus. The Bible is very clear that there will be a revival like none other on this planet, God actually appointing 144,000 witnesses. Think of this, 144,000 Pauls running around the planet, bringing people, especially the Jewish nation, to faith in Jesus Christ. If you're at that place where you're worried about individuals, know that there will be a massive revival. Scripture speaks to this in this component in Romans chapter 11 verse 25 especially about the Jewish nation. You see this on the screen. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved. This is speaking of God's patience. Those who are not born Jewish that didn't have the upbringing in the Hebrew tradition, Gentiles, Greek-speaking individuals, people other than Jewish biologically, the Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ by the billions around the planet. But then God says at the very end, the nation of Israel will turn. And Paul writes, all of Israel will be saved. That's the grace of God. God. That's the mercy of God. You're gonna see that coming back out again this morning. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now that's happy stuff. Here's the ugly stuff. Although what we just described is completely true and that's what's going to happen, during the tribulation, the tribulation is primarily characterized by unbelief and it's primarily characterized by wickedness. Humanity is going to become so hardened to sin, it's gonna become so commonplace that false religion will be personified in the realm of an individual known as the Antichrist in the Bible. And that Antichrist will reign over this planet during the tribulation. The Bible goes on to say that the Holy Spirit will actually be removed from the planet, the one who restrains sin now. And as a result, the love for humanity, the love for one another will grow cold and humans will not have any love for each other. And as evil increases from bad to worse, well, we're told that that will become human nature. Look with me on the screen at this. Second Timothy 3.13, But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And he's just writing, Paul's writing to Timothy, just describing human nature. Since the fall of Adam, human nature is to become evil and then evil proceeding to worse and deceiving and being deceived and especially ramped up during the time of the tribulation. In other words... Don't expect things to get better. It's spiraling down. The Bible points to that, not upwards. The world becomes spiritually darker. The world will become physically darker, Jesus said, and love will grow cold. And as I told you two weeks ago, at the ultimate point, demons will be unleashed on the planet. It will bring torture and suffering and agony like it's never been experienced before. And then, according to the Bible, it's almost the end. Let me just stop there for a moment. Just like Jesus described, as you saw two weeks ago when he was talking about Noah, just like during the days of Noah, the generation of this planet during the tribulation will have been warned and warned and warned and warned and warned. And then Jesus said, Suddenly, the heavens are going to split open, and Jesus is going to peel the eastern sky back, and he's going to come in power and great glory and every eye will see him. And that's the second coming. We've been seeing Jesus exhort us in these parables over and over again in the last couple of weeks, and there's two weeks left to go, and he keeps saying, watch, be ready, be alert. So while we're here, believers are told to do the same thing Whether you're going to live to see the last days or whether you'll be dying before that time or taken away, I don't know. I told you two weeks ago, Jesus, God, could kick the can down the road 500 years for all we know, but it could be tonight at 7 o'clock, it could be tonight at 6 o'clock, we don't know. We're told specifically there's things that we're supposed to be doing You'll see this in your notes if you picked them up this morning. You won't see this on the screen, but just hear me. These are some of the things you've been told to do. You've been told not to be deceived by those who will be claiming that they're Christ. False Christ, in other words, false religion. You're not to be alarmed by current events, according to what Jesus said in verses 7 and 8. He said, expect that persecution is part of the deal. Persecution is part of the birth pains. He said, during that time, you better be faithfully proclaiming the gospel. And then he went on to say, always be ready, always be alert, always be watching. So here's what I hear Jesus doing in a way of summing up what we've looked at so far. I hear him calling out across millennia, over thousands of years, calling out to the church, calling out to all of humanity saying, don't be allowing yourself to be fragmented. God has a plan. There's, There's something going on here. God has a purpose, and especially to the church. Don't allow yourself to be torn apart Why humanity is tearing itself apart. Be more discerning and be more shrewd than that. We know that God has a plan and a purpose. If he did not care, he wouldn't be telling us any of these things. He wouldn't give us a heads up and a warning. But he does care. He cares immensely, and so he wants us to know. So here we go, Matthew 24, verse 42, therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. We looked at that two weeks ago, just real quickly. I said that watching is the equivalent of readiness. Readiness is the equivalent of salvation. So he's talking about being spiritually ready here. In the last days, Christians have to be on the alert. At the same time, you can be secure in the knowledge that you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, that the Satan can't snatch you away from the love of God, right, church? Can't take you away. You've been sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit, so you don't have to be living in fear. There's no cause for dread. Now, since no one knows when it's going to happen, we're told there's got to be constant vigilance. Let me just quickly touch on a parable from two weeks ago. Matthew 24, 43, next verse. But be sure of this that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have not, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. So when Jesus says this, be sure of this, he's stating a truism. He's stating a fact, a fact of humanity. And he's saying, pay attention to the fact. As everyone knows, no thief intentions his, uh, announces his intention to rob. But if the head of the house had known, no homeowner who knows the thief is coming is going to fail to be on the alert. They're going to turn on all the spotlights. They're, they're going to alarm... A, 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 activate the alarm system. All the perimeters will be activated. I'll just carry forward the image that Jesus is painting here. He's saying that individuals that are alive during the tribulation will know with absolute certainty when the thief is coming by the signs, and he's presenting himself as the thief. Jesus is not a thief, but he's saying, I'm going to come like a thief. I'm going to come so quickly, no one expecting it, and I'm going to do the work that I need to do, and he's saying the thief will be breaking in very soon. So here's his warning, that last day's generation is going to have enough detail to know with certainty when the thief is coming because of the signs and they're supposed to prepare accordingly. Here's where we ended that parable two weeks ago. I said to you, it seems impossible to me to imagine that of this global population that we're part of, that people will not be on high alert when those kind of signs appear The darkening of the sun, the darkening of the moon, famines, massive earthquakes, the love of one another turning cold. How could people not be sensitive to the reality of what's being declared here? In light of this absolute horror, why would they not pay attention? What I didn't show you two weeks ago was 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians specifically, chapter 2, verse 11. This speaks to the why. Verse 11, for this reason... God will send upon them deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Why would God do that? Verse 12, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness, so consumed with the things of this world and desiring the things that God calls wicked so much they would rather have that than have the things that God promises. That's a really dangerous place to be, to be so absorbed in the pursuits of the things on this planet that you can actually become ignorant to the truth, ignoring the truth even to the degree that Jesus is coming. But the heart becomes so hard, it says, I don't think so. He's not coming anytime soon. you really believe that? That's happening? I told you we would circle back around to the reality that all is not lost during the tribulation. And this is the part I need you to labor through with me just a little bit. Work with me through this passage in Revelation. Because of God's mercy and because of his incredible patience, I told you there would be this unprecedented turning to Christ. Look with me at this just incredibly beautiful passage in Revelation 7. And this is John writing about the things that God showed him. John wrote, verse 9, "...I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count." From every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Go down to verse 13, just drop down. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them, and they will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There's a beautiful passage. Because they've come out of the very things you've just been studying in the last couple weeks. Why would John list those things? Why would he list all of the negatives? Because they've just experienced the scorching heat of the sun. They've experienced famine and earthquakes, loss of family members. They've known what it is to go through the tribulation, and yet they came to faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of that. They turned their heart toward God because God is that merciful. And John said, I looked, and there were multitudes beyond what anyone could count. And they're in white robes and holding palm branches, and I don't even know who they are. Who are they? Well, they've come out of the tribulation. See, even in those final days, as bad as things will get, even to the very end, just before the great and glorious day of the Lord, some will turn to faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Your God is that Merciful that even during a period of time over the course of someone's life where they would shake their fist at God, say, I want nothing to do with you, God yet works in their heart and pulls them in and draws them in into relationship. Our God is that patient. So Jesus ramps it up now. He's walking us right into this very short parable. Verse 44, for this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Uh, We've seen this repeated over the last couple weeks as we moved into these parables. Him saying, be alert, be watching, be ready. But here's what we haven't looked at. Look at just those two words, be ready. And there's two aspects I want you to see to being ready. Remember who's in front of him. He sits on the Mount of Olives. He's teaching what we call the Olivet Discourse. He's got followers in front of him. The 12 disciples are there. It's two days before the crucifixion. So he's got individuals who follow him and who believe in him, and he says to them, you be ready too. And he's just come off of saying, just as Noah was ready, just as Noah and his family was ready to enter the ark, Only one Greek word in your notes this morning, you see this Greek word on the screen, and that particular word is talking about being mentally, spiritually adjusted. When Jesus says, be prepared, this is the thought behind it. Fitness, adjusted, mentally. So he's talking about being spiritually ready to meet Jesus, and I find this coming out in two aspects. This is what I want you to see just before this parable. When he talks about being ready, he's talking about being salvation ready for those who are not yet believing. In other words, saved by the blood of the Lamb. You got people in your life who don't know Jesus yet? He's talking to them. He's talking about being spiritually saved to the point where you're ready to meet Jesus. But he's also talking about those individuals who are believers. And to that group, he's talking about being faithfulness ready. That's probably you this morning. You're in church. 11 o'clock, Sunday morning, you could be out doing anything. You're here. Are you faithfulness ready? Because you're already believing. Well, Jesus speaks to both in this parable. Ready for what? Well, he goes on to say, be ready for the Son of Man is coming. You see those five words because he's coming in fury and he's coming in glory. He's coming in both ways and he's coming as a total surprise If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, your readiness allows you to meet Jesus without any shame, without any fear, without any trembling whatsoever, because He's redeemed you through His own blood. Your sins have been wiped out. You've been made spotless before the Lamb. Therefore, you can meet Jesus without fear. But if you are not spiritually ready, you'll be meeting Him as a judge, and you don't want to meet Jesus as judge. You wanna meet him as savior. This is what he's talking about when he sets this up. The, the Bible is replete with this. It describes this over and over and over again. Here's just two examples, Luke 12, 35. Be dressed in readiness, keep your lamps lit. Or this one, 1 Peter 1:13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's talking about the second coming there. So Jesus now makes a shift. Parable starts now, and he turns our attention just slightly away from being watching and being ready to the outcome of being watching and being ready, and he starts with verse 45. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Uh, Jesus is using a really familiar image here. He's borrowing from the picture of a first century estate, and you have a, a landowner and an estate owner, and he's got a big household staff, obviously, and he's appointing someone who's in the household to be head steward while he's gone on a trip. So we have the word doulos used here, and doulos is a servant. This is the head steward. He's head over all the domestic affairs of the estate, and he's been given this task of feeding the household. So Jesus borrows this image right out of the first century of this large estate where there's many staff and he puts one person in charge and this servant who's been put in charge doesn't have this position of privilege because he's worthy of it, but rather because the master chose him to be in that position and because he's in the role, he's responsible, responsible to make sure everybody gets their food. But the specific responsibility is secondary. That's not what Jesus is driving at. It's not the responsibility. Every member of Jesus' household has an obligation and has assignments. Do you notice as you read that, that he doesn't designate, he doesn't identify who that is. He just asks the question, who then? Who then is faithful and who then is sensible? And because he doesn't identify who then is, he leaves it as an open-ended question. It's Jesus' way of asking you, are you? Are you sensible? Are you faithful to these spiritual things? Are you faithful and sensible with what he's left you to do? We talked last week about being the doorkeepers, having the responsibility to steward over the things that God left for us to do. And Jesus is following that up with this question. Who then is faithful and sensible? Are you being faithful with what he's left you to do? Every Christian in this room, every person who professes Jesus Christ has stewardship over your talents and over your time. How are you doing with using that? There's no one who's exempt from it. Jesus is asking that question. Every Christian has been given the stewardship responsibility to advance Christ's kingdom. That's why he says, be alert. So we're each expected to be faithful and to be sensible in carrying out our duties. Here's what I want you to see in this parable. How the servant responds to the master's directives is a direct correlation to whether or not that person is actually in relationship with the master. Jesus is going to bring that out. In other words, is there fruit? Is there fruit in my life? What's the inward condition like? See, Jesus wants to come back and find his servants faithful. He wants to come back and see them carrying out the things that he's asked them to do. And so he's saying very specifically who's being faithful, who's being sensible. But it's the evidence of that person that actually indicates whether or not they belong to the master. Are they being faithful? Well, he answers his own question. Who then is faithful? Who is sensible? Well, he says the wise servant, the one who's found carrying out the master's purposes. Watch with me. Verse 46, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. I don't know if you've stopped to think about the rewards that are waiting for you in eternity one day. Did you know there's rewards in store for you? The Bible is replete with that. It says there's rewards waiting for you, not just the reward of salvation, but a reward as a co-heir with Christ. You become an inheritor of the kingdom of God. Well, what kind of wealth is that? Well, it's unlimited wealth. It's all the things that God has in store for you that He's going to prepare for you. And Jesus is talking about rewards here when He brings this issue out. How do I know that? Well, he's obviously talking to believers here. He's got the 12 in front of him. He's talking to individuals who follow him. So he's speaking also to the church, and he's speaking to those who are submitted to him as Savior and Lord. And he's the master, and he's away from the estate, and he's coming back again, and then he uses this statement. You'll see this on the screen, verse 47, just four or five words. Truly, I say to you. Well, who's the you? The you is you, The you is the followers of Christ. Truly, I say to you, and he puts great emphasis on that when he uses the word truly. It's like Jesus saying, pay attention, because he's committing a promise to you. The one who's been found faithful is going to be given charge of all of the Lord's possessions and becomes an inheritor in the kingdom, a fellow heir with Christ. Maybe you haven't read it in a long time, but look what Romans says, Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Let's zoom out, 30,000 foot view. I told you big picture stuff. Jesus has slightly turned his attention away from the watchful, ready aspect, and he's turning his attention to the outcome of being watchful and being ready. And he's showing that what we do now, what we do here in 2021, what we do with our time, how we respond, manifests our true character. Well, how does it do that? By our behavior. Are you the faithful and sensible slave? Are you what he's about to point to as the evil slave? Why would he bring those two things out? Because not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will be entering into the kingdom of heaven. Not all who profess him as master actually mean what they say. Not everyone who says, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee, take my silver and my gold. Not everyone actually means that because it's too easy just to let it fall off our lips in the midst of a church service, but am I really, genuinely sincere about that? So Jesus makes the shift, and watch how he closes out this parable. Verse 48, but if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves, and eat and drink with the drunkards, just pause with me for a moment there, We said that during the end times, during the last days, people will remain and become even more so openly, egregiously rebellious against God, caring absolutely nothing for the truth of God's word. In other words, you might say uncommitted. I don't even know if I would say unbelieving, but I would definitely use the word uncommitted. Unbelieving is obviously associated with it, but what does uncommitted look like? That's an individual who knows the truth, who hears the truth, and says, no, thanks. I, I know what I said on Sunday, but, you know, it's Thursday night. I really don't want to do what I said. These uncommitted individuals, Jesus, he says, that's the evil slave, and they're going to be held accountable for what they do Because they've got all the information and they've got the awareness. They know the master's away and they know that he said he's coming back. But they're saying, he's not coming for, I'm not even sure he's coming. He's not coming for a long time if he is even coming. And I want you to watch the progression of the thinking in this. So The verse is on the screen again. Just watch how the human mind works. And Jesus knows this because he built us. Watch the progression as you read that. There's a person who's thinking, there is no possibility that I'm going to be held accountable. My master's not coming for a long time. He can't possibly hold me accountable. And that thought, it starts in the thought life, and that thought takes root. And when that root blossoms, the person begins to act. Unjustly, It starts in the mind, it moves to the actions, they begin to act unjustly, and this one in Jesus' parable begins taking advantage of his superior position and begins abusing other people. Jesus says he begins beating his fellow slaves. He's taking advantage of his role, and by the actions of his life, he's revealing who he really, really is, and then Jesus adds to it This one's not only revealing his true character, he adds to it this unbridled self-indulgence where he begins hanging out with people who are just like who he is on the inside. He's hanging out with the drunkards, he's getting drunk just like them, and he's associating his life with them, absolutely no restraint. And what is Jesus describing? He's describing someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit causes us to be convicted over that behavior. But Jesus is describing someone who absolutely doesn't care. 30,000 foot view again, just the big picture. Jesus is teaching that every single one of us holds our life that we've been given in trust from God. Whether or not a person even acknowledges God, they're going to be held accountable for how they use what's been given to them, how they use the information that's been given to them, how they use their time that's that's been given to them, how they use the information that Jesus is coming back. So the evil actions that Jesus is mentioning here, the beating the fellow slaves, the the eating and the drinking, becoming drunk to the degree that he's hanging out with drunkards all the time, this is just a first century picture that's reflecting someone's attitude. This particular individual's behavior is totally thinking, there's no way he's coming. It's not going to happen. And he's not affected at all by the prospect of Jesus coming back. So back into what he's describing here. Because many in the last days will be thinking Jesus is not coming for a long, long time. They're going to feel free to indulge in whatever form of ungodly, vile behavior they want to. And the Old Testament characterizes human nature. If you think that's not possible for humans to become that way, the Old Testament said people were doing as they saw fit in their own eyes. That pretty much describes humans. When the laws are taken away, we do whatever we think is necessary And mind you, this parable is definitely speaking of Christ's visible return to the earth. It's speaking of the second coming, but the principle applies to you and I right now in 2021, before the rapture of the church. It's describing human nature. We live in an age when those who profess to be Christians are absolutely not living like that. They actually live as though they're completely indifferent towards God. The behavior might be completely the opposite of a Christ follower. And their life choices and their behaviors look no different than the ungodly. And Jesus is saying, they're going to be shocked. They're absolutely going to be mortified when they say, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. So here, this wicked servant is using the supposed delay to live his life unrestrained and carousing But like the people of Noah's day, as Jesus was describing, he's totally unaware of the coming judgment, and Jesus ends it with this verse now. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour which he does not know, and will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In, in this case, and I told you, this is a really intense parable. In this case, Jesus isn't dealing with this individual as Savior. He's dealing with this one as judge. And there's a Greek word that's used here that I need to explain to you that represents we'll cut him into pieces. I didn't put it in your notes this morning just so you wouldn't get distracted with it. Dicomoteo. And it's a word that's very familiar to the disciples who are sitting in front of Jesus. When he says he will cut them into pieces, they immediately have an image pop in their mind because they're Jews. They've grown up in the Judaistic system. They know what the sacrificial system is. And because they've experienced the sacrificial system, they know what it is to see an animal cut into pieces. This word that's being used here is playing off from the Old Testament imagery of the sacrificial system in which an animal that's being chosen for the slaughter on the altar of sacrifice is taken by the priest and is split down the middle and separated into two halves. And when the disciples hear this, they know it's carrying this unmistakable and unalterable idea of total destruction and total death. Here's the image that's associated with it. The separation. We're talking about eternal judgment here. The separation to the degree that this one is not just separated from the love of God, and it's bad enough to be separated from the love of God, but then to be sent to that place. Jesus called out that place. He will be assigned to that place with the hypocrites. This is the separation he's talking about. Who? The religious posers. The religious posers are going to go to the same place as the hypocrites, And if you're not clear on what he's describing, he's describing hell when he says the weeping and gnashing of teeth, absolute, horrible, eternal torment, unrelenting agony. The ones who might be tempted to come to church and say, take my life and let it be, but only used it as a song because there was a great melody with it, but never really committed their life to Christ. That one assigned him a place. So Jesus' warning is not just to inform us about the horrors of this stuff, but to use this as a motivation. His appeal that he's calling out across the ages is believe while there's still opportunity. Believe because today is the day of salvation. Get yourself to that point where you believe and you dedicate fully your life to Christ. Christ. And maybe as a person who goes to church, you're wondering, well, okay, why doesn't he actually come like now then, Mark? We're hearing all this stuff. Why does he wait so long to come? I'm going to tell you, just to close this out, there's, there's two purposes specifically. Sovereign purpose, sovereign patience. What's his sovereign purpose? His sovereign purpose is that he's allowing sin to run its course, the fullness of the sin. He's allowing it to play out on this planet. Why? I don't know. I can't even answer that for you. Why? Because it's his sovereign purpose to allow sin to run its full and complete course. So when people ask me, why is there evil in the world? Because God's allowing it to play out, to fulfill all of his purposes. We'll have to ask him in eternity why some of the things that happened have happened. But it's part of his plan. But what about his sovereign patience? He's waiting. He's waiting for those who will be saved to be saved saved, waiting for all those who God has said will be saved. He's waiting for them to come to faith in Christ, and so he's incredibly patient, and that's what Peter spoke of in 2 Peter 3. Look with me on the screen. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So what seems like a really, really long time for you and I is just an eye blink to God. It seems like thousands of years but a day to him. Our perception of time is really, really poor because we don't have an eternal perception of time. But because of his sovereign patience... He's allowing the fullness of time to completely play out, the fullness of all of His purposes. All that to say, this second coming thing that you're learning about, that you're studying in the midst of these parables, this means, the second coming means history is going somewhere. It is not random. God has a purpose and a plan. There will be a real end to this world just like there was a real beginning to this world. And at the end, you will find Jesus. At the end, you'll find him either as your savior or as your judge. And Jesus is saying, which way do you want to meet me? That's what he's asking the question of. Because God has a reason for everything he does, it means that you are here today. You are here for a reason. You have great eternal purpose there's a reason God's allowing you to still draw breath in your lungs. He has a great plan for you. He treasures you and he wants you to be with him. And that's only possible one way, to come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. The one who will take your sins and wipe them away and make them no more. God actually committed that he would take your sins and separate them as far as the east is from the west. You can't get any further apart than that. You're sitting in an auditorium today filled with individuals, people who are watching virtually online, who understand that Jesus Christ has taken away their sins, and they will stand before him today without any fear. If that's you, say amen. That's a great truth. But you have friends in your social circle, in your family groups, in your co-work environment, who don't know, and they live in fear of tomorrow, because they don't know what tomorrow holds. Jesus says there is a plan, there is a purpose for all of this and only by giving your life to him and as a result, he will forgive you and take you to eternity to be with him forever and ever and ever, amen. If you've got questions about this thing that you're hearing about giving your life to Christ, having him take your sin away, whatever you think you've committed that's too big that will keep you from a relationship with God, I promise you, Whatever the biggest sin in your life is, Jesus died to forgive that sin. And if you think what you've committed is too big for him to forgive you, you're calling God a liar because God said there isn't anything you've done in sin that he cannot forgive and bring you into relationship with him. If you want to know more about that, if you want to know more about how you come to God, after the service, Pastor Jeff, Jeff Schneider, one of the pastors, will be over at the prayer room and you'll be able to talk with him. I'll be myself right here in the front, and I'll be happy to greet you. Uh, if you're new to the church, I'd love to meet you. But if you want somebody to pray with you, go over to the prayer room after the service. Here's how I want to close. I want to pray with you to close, but here's what I'm going to ask you to do right now. I'm going to ask you to picture in your mind a family member or a friend or a coworker whom you're pretty sure doesn't know Jesus. I don't have a relationship with him. And you think about how precious that person is to you. And here's how I'm going to ask you to pray. That God would give you eyes to see the rest of the global population of this planet that same way. Because that's the way he sees this population of this planet. The way that you see that friend who's precious to you or that family member. You desperately want them to know Jesus. Pray that God would give you eyes to see those other people that way. It will motivate you. Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for each and every individual, every soul represented in the piercing of this silence, God. Do what only you can do through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, right now, souls are crying out, and I pray that you would draw them into relationship with you. That your Holy Spirit would not be pushed away. But rather, for those who need to have a genuine relationship with you, God, that we would embrace Father, for those who are believers already committed to you, God, I ask that you would give us eyes to see the population of this planet the way that you see them, that you're not wanting anyone to perish. But there is a reality that you are coming again, and we have to deal with that reality, so motivate us, Father. Motivate us to be faithful servants and not evil servants, to be found as those who were carrying out the work that you gave us to do and to take seriously this responsibility. So God, I ask that you would motivate, that it would come by the power of your Holy Spirit. For those who are not yet believing, Father, my heart's cry to you on their behalf is that you would embrace them and love them in a way that only you can, and use the unrelenting, unresistible power of the Holy Spirit to draw, draw, Father, draw. Father, we ask for these things because this is life and death, so we put it in your hands. I pray, God, that you would cause us to take on this afternoon and tomorrow and Wednesday and Saturday in light of all these things, knowing your call upon us. We pray for this in the matchless name of our soon coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.